when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Election Countdown, your regular update on the UK's general election from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. We're into the third week of the general election campaign, and it's been a tricky one for the Labour Party. We'll be digging into Jeremy Corbyn's difficult interviews, his issues with anti-Semitism, his efforts to turn the campaign onto trade talks. Plus, we'll be listening to some reports from the trail about how it's going for the Liberal Democrats in London and Labour in Heartland, England. I'm delighted to be joined by our columnist Robert Shrimsney, Deputy Penny Editor Miranda Green, Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard and Europe Editor Ben Hall. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Election Countdown, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday and Wednesday. We also do appreciate a positive review. Week three of the UK's general election campaign has been not a particularly positive one for the opposition Labour Party. It began with opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn embroiled in a racism row. The party tried to bounce back from a very difficult TV interview with some leaked health documents about what would happen to the NHS under a trade deal with Donald Trump. Then in the middle of the week we had a big YouGov poll that suggested the Conservatives might be on course for a healthy majority after all. Following that, everyone had to recalibrate their strategies and decide what to do next. So Robert Shrimsley, let's begin with Labour. So a lot happened this week, but Jeremy, the theme has been a difficult one for Jeremy Corbyn's party. Let's begin with the racism row that began on Monday with the intervention from the UK's chief rabbi, followed by his interview with the BBC's Andrew Neil. So the chief rabbi writes an article for The Times in which he voices the concerns of the Jewish community about a Labour government led by Jeremy Corbyn. He doesn't actually go quite so far as to say, don't vote for Jeremy Corbyn, but you don't have to read very far between the lines. No, that's what he's fundamentally saying. And this dominated the headlines for 24 hours. Jeremy Corbyn couldn't shake this off. You know, the Labour Party has been beset by allegations of, at the very best, indifference to anti-Semitism within its ranks for some time. It's extraordinarily unusual for a religious leader to make an intervention like this. So this was bad news for Jeremy Corbyn. And worse news for Jeremy Corbyn was that it came on the day that he had agreed to be interviewed in a set-piece interview on the BBC by Andrew Neil, the most feared interviewer of the moment, who then monstered him on the subject for 10 minutes. It was absolutely appalling. He refused to apologise, even though he's apologised in the past. Presented with a phrase, I think it was Rothschild World Zionist World Government, challenges to whether he thought this was anti-Semitic. It took him four or five goes to conclude that it was. It was an absolutely terrible start to think it was so bad that the Labour Party brought forward these leaked health documents, which had been saving up to have a big attack on Boris Johnson, the Conservatives. I was joking somebody that basically these documents have been stored in a box with a glass front with the words break glass if under attack from the chief rabbi. <laughs> they brought them forward. So Miranda Green, if we just go back to that interview there, you know that Andrew Neil is obviously a veteran BBC presenter who always does these tough interviews. But his one with Jeremy Corbyn seemed to be particularly brutal this time. And I think partly was that lack of apology that everybody just felt was truly awful when he was asked four times. And it was so odd because he has apologised before. He's apologised 
criticised the Jewish community. He's apologised for not getting things right. But he seemed to be particularly belligerent in that interview and it really didn't do him any favours at all, particularly, as Robert said, following the chief rabbi's letter. So it was 30 minutes and it felt like about 50 and it was painful to watch. And they got 3 million viewers, which at 7pm is extraordinary for a politics show. You feel that quite a lot of them will have been watching through their fingers or from behind the sofa because it was such a sustained attack. Of course, in terms of the die-hard Corbyn fans, you can't really forget that they will just see this as their guy being given an unreasonably hard time. And the awful thing about the anti-Semitism issue is I think it's now become hardened along partisan lines. A lot of Labour Party supporters will not hear this message and will not hear it as a failure of their leader. So in a funny sort of way, his refusal to apologise is also kind of stands for the refusal of a lot of Corbyn supporters to acknowledge that this is a real issue. I think one of the factors that's coming to the fore in this campaign actually is, is a kind of almost Trumpian, Bannonite war on the media messengers rather than addressing the issues with the main parties. And they're all guilty of it. There's been a lot of sniping at the media, rubbishing the media and whinging about the coverage. And so I think although Corbyn's performance was just extraordinarily bad, in my view, and actually not just on anti-Semitism, the second section of the interview I thought was worse. On economics. Which was on the economics. It was on how are you going to actually come up with the enormous numbers that you need to fulfil all the spending pledges. It became clear that the subject of how the government funds things and how government borrowing operates was almost outside the realm of his understanding. So it was a very damaging interview. If you are willing to think that Jeremy Corbyn is a politician who can be criticised in this way and that therefore you should think he's not fit for office, he's got a lot of supporters who just are not looking at him in this way. And because Boris Johnson, we now think, may not turn up to have the equivalent grilling, unfortunately, the conversation moves on from is he fit to be Prime Minister to a whole kind of meta-conversation about the campaign and whether he's being given a fair hearing. And for those of us inside the media trying to concentrate on the issues and on things like fitness for office, it's terribly difficult. Because that's where the argument's now gone next, Robert. Should Boris Johnson do one of these interviews? Now, I hate to do a whole story about the media talking about the media. Oh, go on, let's. But let's do it anyway. The fact is that when Jeremy Corbyn did it, he did it on the understanding or at least the assumption that all the other party leaders were going to do a similar interview. But there was no date fixed with the Prime Minister and watching the mauling that Mr Corbyn got, they have not yet found a date and we've now had, as Miranda described, this very Trumpian argument about what happens next because they've got this tit-for-tat where the Conservative Party has said Boris Johnson could do an interview with the Andrew Marshall, which is seen as a slightly less intense format than the Andrew Neil interview on Sunday. The BBC have now hit back again and said it's Andrew Neil or nothing. Do you think he's ultimately going to do this interview and what does it sort of tell us about how Boris sees it? It's very much taking these with a safety-first well, approach. I think it's a fine judgment they're trying to make, whether the damage of being seen to be too cowardly to do it exceeds the damage that they're likely to take in a really grim interview, which is what it's likely to be. And he's got a lot of things to answer where he won't answer well and he's given to bluster, which doesn't work in this format. So they're judging which way to go. There's no question that ducking the interview would be an act of immense political cowardice, but Boris looks up for that act. I think that they're looking at this now, they're looking at the campaign 
They've got a comfortable lead. They're sitting on their lead. They don't want to do anything that's going to damage it. And all the risks that they might have been prepared to take earlier in the campaign, they're looking at and saying, is that particular risk worth it? Should we take the trouble? People will, t- will attack us, but we're going on telly all the time. And they're looking back at the Theresa May campaign where she took a big hit for not taking part in debates. But he is taking part in debates. He's on television a lot. He's doing press conferences. So the only thing he's ducking is Andrew Neil and a format on Channel 4 that he didn't think was going to be much good for him. Do I think he'll do it in the end? Every day that passes makes it less likely, in my opinion, because you don't want to do this very close to polling day in case it goes badly wrong and you haven't got time to recover. Because the point, Miranda, is Theresa May ducked out of this stuff and her personal ratings did take a hit because it was seen she was dodging scrutiny. And I guess it's this delicate balance Robert was talking about. I've just come from a press conference where he took half an hour of questions from nearly every newspaper and broadcaster from this country and further afield. And he was very clear to say, look, we are open for scrutiny. We are taking questions, just not quite in the format that's going to be very difficult for us. Absolutely true. People who think he should turn up and do the Andrew Neil interview have said, you know, how can you get the job if you don't do the job interview? In a sort of character way, I think that's true. But Robert's right. They don't want to risk the lead they have. I don't know if they should be all that confident that it's just about not screwing it up at this point. Clearly, we had this very dramatic drum roll and then this poll from YouGov, the MRP constituency level poll dropped on Wednesday night and it looked like an incredibly comfortable win for Boris. They were talking about a 68 majority but of course that's a snapshot. It's not a prediction with what will happen on the day and actually it seems to be tightening a bit. So, you know, there's a level on which people might look back on the Corbyn interview even though it was a car crash and say, well, at least he turned up and at a certain point he gets points for that. Also, what I think the Boris team are slightly missing is, you know, Andrew Neil took Boris Johnson apart during the leadership campaign. He still went on to win the leadership campaign. And we know that he gets kind of given a pass when he stuffs things up. I think they should take the risk and do it personally, not just for sort of moral accountability reasons, but also because probably he'll be let off by the people who favour him within the electorate anyway. When you defy the broadcasters in this way, the broadcasters won't let you forget it. They will go on and on making it a story, even though it's almost no concern to most people. The broadcasters will keep talking about it until it becomes an issue for people. Why is he ducking the interview? Why is he ducking the interview? So it isn't an easy call for him. But I think the other point about this is that one of the things we're going to see in the next couple of weeks I think quite something is really substantial attacks on Boris Johnson's own personality, his fitness for office. What's happened in the first part of this campaign is that the anti-Corbyn attacks have worked. The voters who don't like Corbyn are hearing them. The Labour-minded voters, but who might vote Conservative because of Brexit, are also going, we don't like Corbyn, he's not fit for office. I think what Labour will now be trying to do quite a lot of, and you're seeing it already, is to say to voters, particularly Labour voters in the North, hang on a minute, do you know just what kind of bloke this man really is? He's not just some fun character. And the notion of the Andrew Neil interview would play to that because his fitness for office, his trustworthiness would, I think, be a major part of that interview as it's going to be a major part of the next two weeks. Just one last point on that. One of the things I've noticed in the last two days is all the attacks on the sexism and the comments that Boris Johnson made over the years as a journalist. His particularly unpleasant remarks about single mothers and about poor people. And I think one of the things that Labour is doing already is saying... 
to women, and Boris Johnson has a problem among women voters, just look at this bloke. Is this really what you want in your Prime Minister? And we've seen that from Joe Swinson, the Lib Dem leader, who gave a very full frontal attack on him about things he said in the past, the policies he stand for, his relationship with Donald Trump, all that sort of stuff. And it's interesting the Tories are quite split on this, Miranda, because some female Tory MPs I've spoken to simply say, look, we're not comfortable with this, but Boris is our leader. We can't do much about it. And for a lot of it, and I know this sounds like an apologist for it, but a lot of it is priced in by the electorate. And one of the things I found from the campaign trail is, you know, I remember speaking to some very anti-Brexit Dominic Grieve supporters in Beaconsfield in Buckinghamshire a couple of weeks ago who were going to vote for Dominic Grieve. And when I mentioned Boris, and they went, oh, yeah, I like that Boris. He's a bit of a celebrity, isn't he? It's always fun seeing him around, even though they hated him. Again, the psyche of the British voter is an amazing thing. But you do have to wonder, if everyone is going to go very personal from now on, is that really going to help, you know, further their polling lead? So it's really risky. If you attack a personality or actually a party in two vitriolic terms, you can actually get a resentful reaction from voters who might be minded to back them because you're in a sense questioning the judgment of the voters who want to give them the benefit of the doubt. And that can be quite alienating. So I think political parties deciding to go down this route have made a conscious decision to take that risk. I think, in a sense, the Conservative Party can afford to be slightly sanguine about this because as you say it's kind of priced in he gets to operate under different rules and also he's a known quantity what they are trying to get across is okay Boris is imperfect but do you really want to take a risk with the other guy given all that we know about him and in a sense that's all they need to do because in this election how many people are making a positive choice towards one or the other it's the other option is more scary Now, let's flip, Robert, to the other thing that happened this week, which was YouGov's big MRP. This is a very comprehensive poll and model of the British electorate that essentially looks at constituency by constituency level, trying to model 100,000 interviews on that. And this was the very infamous thing in the 2017 election that predicted the Tories were going to have a hung parliament where everyone else thought was going to be a majority. And it wasn't accurate, but it was the closest possible thing. This model, which came out late on Wednesday evening based on a Tory lead of 11 points said 68 majority. What did you make of the poll just to begin with and the result? Is it what you've been feeling from the campaign so far? It was in line with what I felt at the moment, which was that Boris Johnson was on course for a majority. It was better for them than I expected. It was more convincing at this point. The seats that it was saying were going to fall to the Conservatives are extraordinary. We've talked a number of times about the red wall of Labour seats. Well, they were punching some really serious holes in it. Barrow in Furness, Wakefield, Stoke-on-Trent. All the seats they were going off, they were winning almost long. And some of them, there was one Hindburn, was a swing of 32%. It was quite staggering. It was very, very powerful for the Conservatives. Labour was losing 50 seats, very bad for the Lib Dems. As you say, it's a snapshot. It's still two weeks to go. And Conservatives are quite concerned that voters thinking they're on course for a comfortable majority might feel they've got permission to vote for somebody else. And one of the things I think is going to dominate the last two weeks of the campaign is Conservative warnings about what they will call the chaos of a hung parliament. And Miranda was saying, framing the choice, it's Boris or Corbyn. I think they're framing three choices. It's Boris, it's Corbyn, or it's the chaos of a hung parliament. And I think... Coalition of chaos is the term you're looking for, I I think. I think they will be saying, part of our change agenda is ending the political paralysis. We need to get back to a government that can function and 
We know from the polls that barring the most major earthquake, that isn't going to be a majority Labour government. So if you want some certainty, they'll be saying you need to give the Conservatives the permission and ability to function as a government. And I expect that warning to be coming front and centre again and again and again over the next couple of weeks. And I think they would not actually mind if the headline opinion polls narrow a little bit to help them with that message. Because one of the things for such a big poll that really has set the agenda for a lot of this week is how all the campaigns have adjusted to it. And the Conservative Party, from my understanding, is essentially saying now, look, the polls are going to narrow. A hung parliament is still very much on the cards. And I think you'll be hearing that over the weekend. And their ideal outcome, which may well happen, is on Sunday to see opinion polls saying hung parliament. And actually, the Lib Dem vote has collapsed a bit more. Labour has risen in the polls and there's not a clear majority there. So from the side, they just want to keep saying it's going to be tight, it's going to be tight, it's going to be tight. From the Labour side, they're now having to do a bit of readjustment as well. That's absolutely right. And one of the things that Labour, I think, has decided is that it overestimated the threat from the Liberal Democrats on the Remain side. Absolutely. And underestimated the threat from the Conservatives and the Leave voters, particularly once you've got north of London. So I do think we're seeing Labour Party starting to dress up a little bit its Leave credentials a bit. That's a horrible tightrope to walk. And I don't think that's an easy one for them to pull off. So they're going to have to be quite careful about that because the moment they overdo it, the Lib Dems start coming back. And I think the one thing about where the Lib Dems are is that I do think they're capable of surprising us in micro-targeting. It may be that nationally their vote is being squeezed, but if they're actually effective at their targeting, they may still do better than the MRP poll suggests. It's also a problem for the Conservatives because they need the Liberal Democrat vote to hold up above and beyond its few target seats. And I feel like the whole Lib Dem campaign has been, you know, one of the most tragic stories of this election because they came in with 20 MPs and if the MRP is even half right, they're going to come out of this election with even fewer MPs than they started with. And the fact is that creating the personality code around Joe Swinson was probably a bad idea and their revoke policy, I'm sure you've heard this from candidates too, it seems to have been the single most disastrous thing they could have come up with. And the question for them is between now and Poland here, what can they do? One person that you go, I spoke to said, if the Lib Dems tighten any more, they could very easily go into single figures. It's worth remembering, of course, that the number of seats they go into this election with is boosted by defections rather than seats they actually held. It was 12 they had before. But nonetheless, I think they're in a real problem because they can't abandon their revoke policy. That's absurd. They can stop talking about it, but they can't abandon it. The difficulty is that Lib Dems have always relied on a leader who was bigger than the party, who cut through more, who voters liked and who helped get a fix on the party. They've got a brand new leader and she hasn't really had time to get comfortable in the job. And one of the things I noticed, I was watching the question time debate where all the leaders went on in turn. And I can't remember if she was immediately before or immediately after Nicola Sturgeon. But you watch Nicola Sturgeon and she's so comfortable. She's so relaxed. She manages to seem warm, even though she's a tremendously spiky and effective political figure. Joe Swinson did not come across well in that debate. She came across as somebody who was arguing with you you know, in a pub or at dinner and had to win her points. And she wasn't bringing people with her. And I think that's been a problem for the Liberal Democrats. Voters are not loving her persona yet. Now, it may be over time they will, but unfortunately, the election's now and she's not winning them round. 
So another week in the general election campaign and more of our reporters have been touring the country to find the mood on the doorstep. So let's hear from two of them who have been out to North London and the middle of the country. Ben Hall, do you want to begin to tell us about Finchley and Golders Green? This is a seat in North London currently held by the Conservative Mike Freer and was traditionally a Conservative Labour marginal but very much not anymore and the Lib Dems are hopeful that they can maybe take this one. Yes, by all natural laws of politics, this should be either Tory or Labour. The Tories won 25,000 votes in 2017 and Labour were just behind on 23,000 and the Lib Dems were... Three and a half thousand, but this isn't obviously a normal election. And the Lib Dems have a new and powerful and compelling candidate in Luciana Berger, who parachuted in from Liverpool, Wavertree, where she was the Labour MP for nine years before leaving the party this year. So she thinks she has a big chance. In fact, she thinks this is a match between her and the Tory candidate and therefore a match between a Brexit supporting MP or somebody who's a true Remainer like her. It was a wise move by the Lib Dems to parachute her in because, first of all, she's a very high-profile candidate and quit Labour to first join the Independent Group for Change before eventually joining the Liberal Democrats because of anti-Semitism. And Golders Green has one of the UK's biggest Jewish communities there. And it's actually somewhere where the vote amongst that community could help swing the vote there. So that obviously in some way knocks Labour out of the equation. But Mike Free has been there, I think, since 2010 as the MP. And, you know, both parties have been very strong on anti-Semitism. So what's her message? Why would you vote for her over the Tories in that seat? Well, I think she has two messages, really, which is that she's playing to both of these audiences. She wants voters to punish Labour over anti-Semitism and she wants the revengeful side of the electorate to punish the Tories by voting for her over Brexit. So she's looking to scoop up two of those dissatisfied constituencies, if you like, of opinion and hopefully they would add up to enough to put her in first place. And so when you went out on the doorsteps with Mike and Luciana, what was your personal sense of how it might go? It's always the most difficult question. Well, knocking up a few streets is obviously never a scientific (laughs) example, but the one thing that did strike me going out with Luciana was while there was a lot of goodwill towards her, this was a labour area, East Finchley actually, while there was a lot of goodwill towards her and a number of people on the doorsteps said how much they respected her for the stance that she had taken and that they were worried about anti-Semitism. They were all saying, I'm torn, I don't know what to do, I've always voted Labour and I don't know what to do. I would have expected more of them to be saying, I'm with you this time, and they weren't. And I thought it was quite revealing that there are a lot of people there who are still very torn and still quite undecided, actually. And I think that's a message from across the whole country. There's lots of people who don't like Jeremy Corbyn are not necessarily in love with Boris Johnson and aren't convinced by the Liberal Democrats. And I think that's why, in fact, the final two weeks of the campaign are going to be so tricky. And then just finally on this, there was an Evening Standard poll that came out a couple of months back which said that the Lib Dems had rocketed from, as you said, pretty much nowhere into first place. That then came back a bit. There was an poll in the Observer last week that had the Tories back in first place there. Do the Conservatives feel they've got momentum on the doorstep? And, you know, how Brexity is it? How does Mike Freer's message go down there? Well, Mike Freer voted Remain and says he is a strong supporter of the EU and was very much against a no deal. That was his condition for staying in the government. He's a junior whip. So he is portraying himself as a sort of pro-European who nonetheless thinks that it's undemocratic to not follow through on the referendum. And he thinks that's quite a powerful message. And interestingly, what he's doing is he's sort of making the connection with the anti-Semitism thing, saying that he fears that it will feed extremism, particularly right-wing extremism 
extremism. And that kind of message, of course, may well play well in this constituency, which is roughly a, a fifth Jewish. I think he's quietly confident that he will get enough to squeeze over the line. But one of the remarkable things is how the Conservatives are holding on to so many of their London seats, places like Finchley and Golders Green, Hendon, even Wimbledon, which we thought might go blue. The only exception, really, is Richmond Park, which is a tight Lib Dem Conservative marginal. And it does look like the Lib Dems are going to take that one. Yeah, absolutely. The kind of backlash against the Tories is just not strong enough and that people's allegiances are not being scrambled enough. Now let's look to a different kind of seat, Jim Picard. You've been out looking at Labour-Tory battles in Northampton South, which is a seat the Conservatives currently hold, but Labour would very much like to win it. And in fact, it's the kind of seat Labour has to win if it is going to form a majority at the next election. Tell us what you found on the doorstep there. So Northampton South is a good place to go because... 80% of Labour's resources, certainly in the early weeks of the campaign, have been directed into offensive seats held by mainly the Conservative Party. And there are questions about whether that is wise, given how far behind in the polls the party is. There's been a sort of internal discussion about this, and it it all goes back to 2017, where Labour conducted a fairly defensive campaign, again with one eye on the opinion polls. And there were people like Carrie Murphy, Chief of Staff to Corbyn at the time, who said... We need to fight harder. We can win this. And she was kind of overruled and thus she felt vindicated when they did take net 30 seats. So Northampton South, I went there on Monday in the drizzle, 60 miles north of London, market town. Never been there before. Very interesting. It's a thriving shoe industry there. Some of Britain's best shoemakers. It's sort of a handful of beautiful Georgian and old buildings, but quite a lot of urban decay. A lot of people there talking about how it's fallen on not very good times. And what's fascinating to me is that the incumbent, Andrew Lua, who's been there for a couple of years, he is one to ten odds to win this. He is seen by pundits as someone who's going to very easily hold on to this seat, which raises this question of why is Jeremy Corbyn doing this unless it's just for PR purposes or do Labour really believe they can take these seats? And when you talk to people, you know, Brexit comes up a bit. But when candidates say... Brexit doesn't come up on the doorsteps all the time. I think they are telling the truth, actually, because when I talk to quite a few people, obviously people have their opinions on it, but there are other things at play as well, one of which is Jeremy Corbyn, the person. And we've all seen the statistics suggesting that he is the most unpopular leader of the opposition in our lifetimes. And that, I'm afraid, is borne out by what people say. And for some people, it's that they think that his plans to borrow huge amounts of money, put up taxes in a big way, will kind of return Britain to the 70s and be bad for the economy, fairly or unfairly. There are those who think that he's not that patriotic. There is also quite a large element of people who just don't get a prime ministerial vibe off Jeremy Corbyn and think he's either weak or woolly or doesn't look the part or they just don't like him or they think he looks a bit cranky or sounds a bit cranky. This doesn't mean, however, that Labour won't necessarily win, even Northampton South, because they have a manifesto which is not unpopular necessarily, or certainly individual policies are fairly popular. And I would quote a couple of relatively young clerks from the court there who I spoke to while they were having their fag break under an awning in the rain, and they both hated Jeremy Corbyn, couldn't stand him, and are still planning to vote Labour because they think Labour stands for people like them with not very high incomes 
families to support that kind of thing. What's fascinating stuff about this Corbyn element, because I've been out in some of the red war seats, which are very different targets, because, you know, Northampton South is a classic marginal. It's the kind of place that when you're heading the polls and you're going to form a government, you take if you're Labour or Conservative. The red war seats are the ones that are to do with the changing UK demographic. But the consistent theme I saw when I was up there last weekend was it was not about Brexit, it was about Jeremy Corbyn personally. And I think that one of the narratives of this election that we've sort of missed a little bit is he's about Boris versus Corbyn and how people feel about both of those characters. And there's a lot of people out there, not least people Ben was talking about in North London, who don't like Jeremy Corbyn, don't like Boris Johnson and are trying to decide which person they dislike the least who they want to put into Downing Street. And that's a very difficult calculation. And that's, in fact, where the final stretch of campaigning will matter. I don't think it has been overlooked entirely. If anything, we, the media, do look through the lens of it being a kind of presidential-style contest between two men with incredibly different values, incredibly different personalities, and very, very different manifestos as well, reflecting their different worldviews. And I think as well... Corbyn kind of exudes a negativity about Britain as it is today and Boris Johnson exudes a positivity about Britain as it is today. Corbyn would say that his manifesto exudes positivity because it suggests all these different ways you can tax and spend and make things much, much better. But he said in a speech the other day, this is a nation of billionaires and food banks, billionaires and homeless, as if there's not this huge number of people in between the kind of people who someone once sort of scornfully said of Gordon Brown, he doesn't understand why anyone would want a conservatory. People who just want to get by and provide for themselves and their families and all the rest of it. Is Jeremy Corbyn unpopular? Yeah. And when you talk to Labour candidates, which I've done a lot this week by phone because they are off around the country doing their thing, one of them said to me, it's not a bad thing that Jeremy Corbyn hasn't been going to the red wall seats that are under pressure from the Tories because he's not really an asset. And him turning up would remind people that he exists and he would get stoned, meaning thrown stones at, as opposed to the alternative version of that verb if he came to my constituency and people just repeatedly saying this now the caveat to this is that candidates also said to us in 2017 that jeremy corbyn was really unpopular and yet he still ended up doing much better than people thought and then just to ask you really both about where you see both those campaigns have been, just looking at the Liberal Democrats based on what you've seen there, that as Robert was saying earlier, they're in a very difficult spot at the moment. Creating a campaign around Joe Swinson doesn't really seem to have worked. The message isn't cutting through. They're not set to make big gains. You know, where does this leave them in terms of what they can do between now and polling day? Or is there anything do you think they can do? I'm not sure there is a huge amount they can do, actually. I think they've probably left it too late to really cut through and put forward some really strong personalities. I think also the other thing that I found in Finchley and Golders Green was that even for people who are very strong Remainers, there was quite a lot of concern about their revoke policy. People don't like it. They think it's anti-democratic. These are people who said, for me, Remain is the most important thing, but I want a second referendum. That's the principle. It shouldn't be about just overturning it. So I think it's going to be quite hard for them to unpick that. And it's going to be quite hard for Joe Swinson to acquire a new personality and a new uh, a new sort of more attack dog style, if that's what we think she needs to really break through. But I do feel really sorry for them because even if they had some incredibly dynamic Paddy Ashdown, for example, Margaret Thatcher, for example, type character leading the party, 
you still have the gravity of the first-past-the-post system, which is so punishing to small parties trying to break through. Indeed, just a quick anecdote for me that I spent a bit of time in Eastern Walton this week, which is a seat in Surrey that is as conservative as they come. It's currently held by Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, and the Lib Dems, much like Finchley and Golders Green, have got this sense from their canvas returns they might be able to have a punt at taking it. And there was a huge amount of excitement when they made this a target seat and they brought in lots of activists. And I spent the day talking to local conservatives there and the Lib Dem candidates. They will clearly do well in the same way they will do well in Finchley and Golders Green, clearly better than they did at the last election. But there's a big leap between that and, as you were saying, Jim, the first past the post system. Finally, I've got to ask you, because you've written quite a lot about this this week, following the MRP results that came out, Labour's had to do a bit of recalibration itself and maybe focus more on seats like Northampton South, which it definitely needs to win, as opposed to further away seats such as Boris Johnson's seat in Uxbridge and Ian Duncan's within Chingford, which gets activists incredibly excited at the thought of unseating the Prime Minister or the former Tory party leader, but isn't really going to help them to get into power. So the sort of genesis of this conversational talking point was the BBC report suggesting that there was a change in tactics from Labour. They're much less worried about the Lib Dems now, much more worried now about the Red Wall leave seats. For example... They're going to be sending in Lavery there, who's a very loud-spoken northern lever, and give a bit more profile to some other shadow cabinet members who are quite levy. What they were at pains to emphasise, though, as they rapidly distanced themselves from this BBC article, was that the last thing Labour wants to do is strategically pivot so far away from the Remain voters that they end up losing a load of support in places where they desperately need a Remain vote. Because don't forget, even up north, in those marginal seats, most Labour voters are still Remainers. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily a big strategic shift yet. The big strategic shift that Jeremy Corbyn is under pressure to conduct from candidates is can you stop pouring money in Facebook ads and volunteers into, as you said, Seb, places like Uxbridge, which you're not going to win probably, places like Northampton South that I visited, and maybe try and shore up these 50 or 80 Labour MPs in leave areas who are under desperate threat. What we can't work out yet is whether Labour has quietly started pouring more resources into those areas. I suspect it might be happening under the radar already. Well, we'll find out by next week after another few days of this lovely campaign. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Robert, Miranda, Ben and Jim for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see more FT journalism about the UK general election, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers. You know where to find them, ft.com forward slash offer. The FT Election Countdown was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda and Owen McSweeney. Until our midweek update on Wednesday, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 